Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. My name is Scott Lewis. I'm the editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego and the host of Good Schools for All and the Voice of San Diego podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring one of our podcasts and associating your company's name or message with the great shows we produce, please let us know. Contact Aaron Zlotnick at Aaron at voiceofsandiego.org. That's E-R-I-N at voiceofsandiego.org. Today's podcast is sponsored by San Diego-based MindTouch, a cloud-based software that helps companies take product documentation and turn it into a customer engagement channel that educates buyers and creates product experts to grow revenue. With MindTouch, you can create a self-service customer experience with your documentation that increases customer success and improves sales and marketing. Here at Voice of San Diego, we have a soft spot for MindTouch because its co-founder and chief technology officer, Steve Bjorg, is one of our loyal supporters and tech advisors. If you're looking for a way to improve customer experience, check out MindTouch.com. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. Okay, I'm Scott Lewis from the investigative news outlet Voice of San Diego. I'm the CEO and editor-in-chief, and I'm here with my friend. Hello. Hello, Laura Cohn from the Education Synergy Alliance. Uh, fresh off vacation. I am. I did some walking in the woods and yeah. some family time, so it was good Good break. Did you figure it all out? You know, I actually didn't solve problems while I was walking <laughs> through the woods. I just soaked it all in. Did you uh, Did you reflect on your first job by any chance? Not while I was walking in the woods, but I did <laughs> last night as I was getting ready for this podcast. What was your first job ever? Yeah, so my first job was I had a regular babysitting gig. So yeah. it, was, it was twice a week. Um, the mom was counting on me, so um, I was there regularly and had to work all my other activities around it and took care of a couple little kids. And then when that family moved away, got another family that was a regular gig and then worked in the cafeteria in college as well. Right. I, uh, I babysat and mowed lawns and shoveled snow and stuff for a while. Uh, but my first actual job where I got a paycheck was probably the coolest job, a uh, first job could be, but I didn't make much money. It was a, I was what's called a peer instructor at a, at a ski resort. So I got to ski all day with little kids mm. and help them in their classes, right? So I'd be the one to like pick up the kid if he fell or whatever. And there was this one moment I had this three-year-old and these three-year-olds were often really good skiers. And I remember he, he fell, or it was actually she, she fell and uh, I was picking her up and I remember looking down in her you know, they have these ties on the on the skis that hold the skis together in the, oh, front. the front. So yeah. you can do a little A-frame as you go down. Yeah. And her uh, her 
entire legs were turned the wrong way. Her, her feet were pointing backwards. I mean, this whole thing was like, and I was like, it was like a twilight zone. I'm like, ah, and I, and I just pushed them and like, they got straight and I looked at her and I'm like, did your legs just flop off or what? And she's like, she's just fine. She was just, I, that was my first experience with the elasticity of youth. Anyway, the, uh, so no, I worked there. That was fun. But that summer is when I had my actual, I would consider that I didn't actually make much money. I got to ski and stuff, but, uh, my actual first job was a snack bar. I was at a snack bar at a pool. Okay. Yeah. And that's where, you know, you'd have like the melted cheese with the skin on top that you had to scrape off every morning and, (laughs) and the pretzels and the candy and That's a good job for a teenage boy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Uh, at the pool all day, um, learned how to play, uh, you know, beach volleyball and stuff like that. That was fun. Uh, and my son has his first job now. Really? Yep. He's 16 and he's a busboy mm-hmm. up at a sushi restaurant in Encinitas. So we're um, watching him go through. J- just last night, I was dropping off. He couldn't find his apron. He was really worried showing up for work, whether he'd be in trouble and get fired for having lost his apron. Oh, wow. He didn't yeah. get fired. <laughs> Good. But th- that worry is key, though. Exactly. That worry is important. I remember feeling those things. I worked at... A, I worked at restaurants. I worked at car washes. It got to the point where I was working way too much, I felt like. And this is, mm. so we're going to talk about this today about actual youth employment, right? That's and right. summer jobs. And the, the what was hard for me is I worked too much, I feel like. I feel like I had these jobs all the time. And even in my senior year in, in high school, I actually took work release, which was a program meant oh. for like people who were, <laughs> you know, like kind of struggling. And I was kind of more of a privileged kid. I, I, I mean, we weren't rich, rich, but we were fine. But like the reason I took, I, I was just so disconnected from education that like mm-hmm. I preferred being at my job. It was just at that point at a ski shop where we, we'd, I was in Utah, we would fix uh, skis, and I was the head of the the shop for a while, the the repair shop. So looking back, you don't trust your judgment that you were getting more out of that work than you would have gotten sitting in your classrooms at school. I, I- it's not that I, I think I'm obviously a wildly successful individual. So I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm fine with how my stuff worked out. I guess what bothers me is like, I'll never get high school back, you know? Yeah. And like, why did I, I had like my whole senior year, like the half of my senior year where I was completely disconnected from school and I could have been like actually engaged and doing things that seniors in high school do. So I, I think, and actually I didn't play football because I, it conflicted with my, uh, my work schedule. I'm like, well, I got to go to work. And like, I could have played football that year. Like that would have been, well, maybe my brain would have been mush. Then. That's right. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to talk about youth employment. It's a much different world out there than it was for us totally as, yep. as we were growing up. Uh, we're going to talk to Andy Hall, the chief program officer at the San Diego Workforce Partnership, who I think has some fascinating, if, if troubling stats about things mm-hmm. the way they are. Um, it's simply not as easy for youth to get jobs. And ironically, it's actually easier for many people who are well off in life uh, and have a lot of privileges than uh, than those who aren't. It's, it's almost like working has become itself a privilege. Uh, That's really why I was excited to do this topic, because it blew my mind when I first learned that. It, I assumed that um, people, young people in low-income communities would be more likely to have jobs because their families need them to pull in income, but actually it's quite the opposite. So, And there are thousands of kids who are willing to work out there uh, who either can't because of transportation issues or are just not getting those jobs. Um, you know, for us, for me and my friends, it was you. It was a job a dozen. Like you could, you just had to decide to work, and and right. there were plenty of jobs. Yeah. Many of my friends simply worked just to pay for their cars, so they could drive to work. So they had the best. 
<laughs> the best cars possible to right. drive to work. Yeah, <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of things changing. First, uh, let's get into an update we discussed a couple weeks ago with our show about teacher assessments and uh, how you evaluate the performance of teachers. And our really fascinating discussion, I thought, with uh, Poway Unified's Teachers Union mm-hmm. about how they did teacher evaluations there. Uh, Randy Weingarten, the actual head of the American Federation of Teachers, I saw she tweeted that story. Uh, so she Good. must have thought it was interesting. Um, they're, they're, you know, obviously trying to thread that needle of protecting their members' interests of, of a lot of these protections and job protections they have, but also um, realizing that there's a lot of pressure, legit pressure, to figure out a, a, a way that we can evaluate teacher performance that's fair, but also that makes sure we have the best quality teachers in the classroom at all times. Right? right. Helps all teachers improve along the way. And that was that's part of what's so impressive about the new system that Poway is rolling out. It doesn't surprise me that Randy tweeted it. I mean, it's great that she did, but she's part of the American Federation of Teachers, which is the union that represents Poway's teachers, unlike the other districts in our region. Mm. So one of the updates we had, we discussed uh, an assembly bill 934 in, in California. This was sponsored by Susan Bonilla from Concord. And uh, it was, at first, it was a very ambitious um, plan to, um, to, to sort of redo a lot of these aspects of teacher evaluation. Uh, I believe it dealt with uh, a couple of controversial issues. What were they? Uh, for example, it had a requirement to lay off teachers who had two straight poor reviews um, before you lay off teachers with more seniority. That's the so-called last in first out problem that uh, when you lay off people with just the least seniority, often you may be laying off the best teachers. And so if you have a budget crisis, you should actually lay off maybe the worst performers. But Yep, that's out. Um, also, so they took that out of the, been, of the bill. That's right. Uh, another thing that's been taken out is that it required multiple ratings, multiple levels of ratings, the way Poway is doing, um, instead of just the two-tier ratings, just um, pass or fail, which is typical in teacher evaluation systems, but that requirement's been removed as well. Um, and it also removed um, dismissal protections for teachers that would make it less arduous to dismiss a teacher it made what it did was made it analogous to non-certificated employees in districts, but that all of those provisions were taken out. They were taken out. Um, but the bill is on life support. There is one part of it uh, that is, I think, significant. It is that it would require a two-year probationary period instead of, or I'm sorry, a three-year probationary period instead of two years before you get what's called permanent status. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, you know, for the first two years when you hire a teacher you can let them go pretty easily. Um, but it's actually not even two years. You ha- you have to decide by March of the second year whether that teacher is going to be re-upped uh, for that permanent status, which isn't even finishing their, their quite two-year program. And so uh, principals and, and administrators have a very tough job of like, are we going to keep this teacher essentially forever yeah. after, after evaluating for this year and a right. half? And they're whatever. never perfect teachers after a year and a half. The typical time to really master the profession is about five years. So it's a tough judgment to make after only a year and a half of watching them in the classroom to know whether they're going to kick in and become um, a good teacher later or whether they really ought to move on to a different profession. Yeah. So the updated bill, um, so this was uh, Susan Bonilla's explanation of what happened. She said, AB 934, which was introduced as a robust and comprehensive bill that will ensure great 
uh, greater support for public teachers to improve the quality of education of every student has now been narrowed in scope. Uh, as a result of an onslaught of opposition from both sides, the teachers' union and education reform groups. She said that I will remain committed to supporting and protecting quality teachers while addressing the problem of persistently ineffective teachers and still believe there's a workable solution for students despite the overwhelming disagreement from both sides. So she's uh, she's pushing this this one last thing. It made it, it, it got thrown out of committee too, but it was it was submitted for reconsideration. So it's literally on life support. Yeah. Um, just just that the gutted version is literally on life support uh, as it uh, just that one change is really the controversial one of of making it three years before you get that permanent sort of tenure status as opposed to two so there's an update on that discussion that we had um you uh and so uh, stay tuned we'll let you know how that goes uh, back to youth employment and i think this is an important discussion what made you want to focus on that Aside from my son joining the workforce, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I alluded to it earlier. I, I, there's a shift in education where um, we're starting to think of the job of public schools as not just being about getting kids graduated, but actually getting them ready for college and career. Mm-hmm. And it's getting um, that idea is, start, is getting built into state policy through new accountability provisions that look um, for the quality of high schools. Look not just at uh, how many kids are graduating, but also at how many kids did things, uh, took coursework during their schooling that um, helps them think about their future career. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a big and important movement. And one um, idea that's really embedded in it is is that for kids to be career ready, they need to get out of the school walls, four school walls, and see what it's like in the real world to work on jobs. But uh, so, but that's intention or opposition to the trends we see of fewer and fewer students, fewer and fewer young people actually getting any employment experience. Well, on that note, let's move on to our number of the week. Our number of the week is the San Diego youth employment rate. So um, that is 21.6%. 21.6% of San Diego 16 to 19-year-olds um, get any employment experience in a given year. And that's down from 28.6% in 2008. And when you look at the graphs, um, you expect you know, it doesn't surprise me to see, and I'm sure our listeners either, to know that when the uh, recession hit, that employment of all ages went down, which it did. But the lowest point it hit was, I think, 18 or 19 percent for youth employment in San Diego, and it's only creeped back up to this 21.6 percent level. In other words, seems like we're looking at a new normal for youth employment, and it's substantially lower than it used to be. Now, this is, uh, we're going to be talking about a similar stat later, which is youth unemployment, and that is, that stat is for 16 to 24-year-olds. This is 16 to 19-year-old employment rate, right? right? So, this is like the kids who are working, or the percentage of them are. Exactly. Uh, Is your son working with a lot of similar uh, teenagers? The bus boys are all teenagers. Yeah. (laughs) Teenage boys, actually. I remember doing uh, busing, uh, which quickly transitions you to dishwashing, which if you're you're good at that, then you move into the kitchen to cook. Oh, all right. You do the prep work, and and then that prep work is bad because then you're doing that at like 6 a.m., 
And then you move on to the grill and stuff like that. That was actually my trajectory. Yeah. He actually, he already washes dishes and he came home complaining last night because the dishwasher was really slow. So he had to wash a lot of dishes last night. (laughs) What do you think, uh, at what point would you draw the line to where working maybe got in the way of like academic success? Yeah, we'll see when the school year starts this year. Definitely have an eye on that for my son who's heading into his junior year, which is an intense year for all high schoolers. Um, just you have to take the SATs. You're taking your your hardest coursework. But he, he really um, has already benefited from this job. He, he is noticing how many people are working hard to produce his meals when he's out in the world, but also at home. Yeah. <laughs> he's more helpful around the house, even after just a couple of weeks of oh, that's working great. as a busboy. So see, I'm struggling. Like, obviously I was really well prepared uh, to like work. You know, I think I did really well pleasing employers over my entire career. And I think that helped. And I think that was a direct result of all the work I did. Yeah. On the other hand, I still, I'm, I'm like, I'm really worried. I'm going to overcorrect to the other side because I'm worried about my kids not, not taking advantage of some like academic things and some sports and fun stuff when, when they're youth, because that time is going to pass. And so I don't want to overcorrect. And I'm really interested in that balance. If anybody has any perspective on, on that balance, uh, you should call in and let us know on our voicemail. And if you have any other perspective on things we've been talking about, or you want to share your story of your first job or what your children are doing as they get into their first jobs, we'd love to hear it. 619-354-1085. That's 619-354-1085. Tell us your name and where you're calling from. And uh, we'll we'll love to hear it. And make sure to clarify, of course, if you don't want us to tell your name and where you're calling from. All right. So our what's working for the week. This what's working is about uh, McKinley Elementary School. So our uh, writer Mario Coran uh, decided to sort of take the district up on its on its uh, suggestion that McKinley Elementary School in North Park in San Diego is a model of what its neighborhood schools sort of revamping program achieves. And this is the idea that, you know, neighborhoods should redo their own schools. We shouldn't do some Superman uh, change from the top and look at McKinley. <clears throat> so he did. He looked at McKinley. Now, um, there were some parents and a, and a principal that were directly involved that deserve a lot of the credit for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also underlying a lot of forces um, that, uh, that it's unclear that other neighborhoods will benefit from. So one of the things that he described, I think, really well is that the, the school was in danger of losing its, its prestigious International Baccalaureate Program. Uh, and uh, what's the IB program? Uh, International Baccalaureate is a program that's actually created in Europe. Um, I think the headquarters is in Switzerland. It's a really sophisticated um, approach to education that puts an emphasis on globalism and kids understanding the, their place in the world, but also habits of mind and um, approaches to learning. It's a it's a really terrific curriculum. And so this was at McKinley Elementary School. It's, as, it's also famously at uh, San Diego High, which has made San Diego High an attractive place for a lot of uh, parents. But um, uh, McKinley was about to lose that, and parents got together with the principal and literally raised money to protect it. And now today, because of that foundation and, and fundraising culture they built, they raise about $120,000 a year. And uh, along with that has been a, a kind of gentrification at the school where um, uh, the, the percent of, of white kids that are going to the school doubled. And so the, it's not that the neighborhood necessarily changed demographically. It's that the kids 
that were there that were fleeing the neighborhood schools are now staying at McKinley. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in large part, when you have to credit that to fundraising, it's both a success story, congratulations to them and the McKinley, but it's also kind of a worrisome tale for some of these other schools that aren't going to be able to benefit from similar type of fundraising and financial mobilization like that. Sure. Most neighborhood schools are not located in places where you can re-attract your local well-off families and count on doing a turnaround through their energy and and fundraising abilities. I looked at McKinley when we moved to San Diego, loved it because I knew about the International Baccalaureate Program and knew it was quality and I visited and Thought it was great. I would have been part of that gentrification trend if we'd managed to find a house near there. But um, so, kudos to them. There's always a strong leader behind a school turnaround situation, and that, there's no exception at McKinley. But also a strong and committed group of parents. Let me ask you this: When we hear about turnarounds and these kind of inspirational successes, uh, it's often about elementary schools. I never really hear one about a middle school. Do you? Is that just my anecdotal like perception, or do you notice that? No, I notice that too, actually. Uh, I think that's interesting. Uh, I think that elementary schools are more amenable to change partly because they're smaller. So Mm -hmm. it's fewer staff members that you have to um, mobilize around a new theme and a new idea Um, and uh, fewer kids also. So it's just I think it's partly a scale issue. Also, middle schools and high schools are organized in departments and departments have their own politics and structures that make them creaky and and, uh, harder to change than just a group of classroom teachers do. Okay. Well, let's talk about youth, unemployment, and employment. Well, if you appreciate this podcast or anything else that Voice San Diego does or the Education Synergy Alliance, uh, we are both nonprofits, separate nonprofits. Um, What's your uh, website? sdedsynergy.org and ours of course is voiceofsandiego.org and if you are supportive again of this podcast or anything else that we're doing with education reporting or our um, our investigative reporting in general please consider donating at voiceofsandiego.org slash donate um, and in particular coming up September 24th you'll want it on your calendars we have PolitiFest coming back PolitiFest at San Diego State University uh, we're uh, partnering with San Diego State and we're going to be doing a, a full day of politics. Look, there are about 45 ballot measures that a typical San Diegan will have to wade through. Incredible. If, and a lot of them are very significant, could have incredible significance on our on our quality of life, on our culture, you know, whether to legalize or uh, eliminate the death penalty, whether to legalize marijuana, uh, whether to mandate that porn stars wear condoms. Uh, whether to make bilingual education available in schools again. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we're going to do our best in this one day to have debates, discussions, uh, s- uh, separate workshops for all of these issues. And uh, and we also have two keynotes. One of them uh, is DeRay McKeeson. He's uh, um, one of the activists behind Black Lives Matter. He was just arrested in Baton Rouge. It became a New York Times story. Um, he's going to be our keynote for the evening. He's and- also the director of Human Capital for Baltimore Public Schools. Exactly. And uh, and then on the other side of the political spectrum is uh, Rayan Salam. He's uh, the executive editor of the National Review, and he's going to be in in the morning for that keynote. Uh, it's going to be an amazing day. San Diego State's partnering. Again, uh, we have KPBS and NBC partnering. So please put that on your calendar. You're going to want to come. If you care about public affairs, you care about education, care about all these issues in, in San Diego. And uh, so mark it on your calendar. Okay, well, this issue of 
juvenile or youth employment or unemployment or lack of opportunities actually became a major issue, not just uh, in the circles that concern themselves with education and, and youth, but actually the mayor of San Diego, he made it a big centerpiece of his January State of the City address. Let's listen to what he said and what he promised. And tonight we are launching the One San Diego 100, a campaign to unite 100 local businesses to offer jobs to San Diego's high school and college students with a focus on low-income neighborhoods. And please join me in welcoming the first members of the One San Diego 100, Cox, NASCO, SDG&E, and Sharp Healthcare. Together, we will employ 1,000 San Diegans this year and invest in the youth that will build our better future. All right, so that will be fun to follow up on. That's quite a pledge. Um, joining us in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio in downtown San Diego is Andy Hall. Andy Hall is the VP and Chief Program Officer at the San Diego Workforce Partnership. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. So uh, what is, first of all, the Workforce Partnership? The San Diego Workforce Partnership is uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization that um, is jointly chartered by the city and county of San Diego to administer um, federal, state, and local job training funds um, on behalf of the city and county. We we fund a lot of different programs. We do research on the skills gap in San Diego, and we operate a few programs, in particular youth programs, um, to help young people be connected to employment. And all of our work is really centered on closing the growing skills gap in San Diego. All right, let's talk about that skills gap. But first, what is the thing that keeps you up the most about youth employment or lack of employment? The, the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning, the last thing I think about when I go to sleep is that there, this stat that came to my attention about six, six months ago is that there's 53,000 um, disconnected youth in uh, San Diego County. And, and what that, how that's defined is 53,000 16 to 24 year olds who are not connected to either education or employment. Um, and what we've been calling that, that population is opportunity youth. But there are, that's that's scary for a number of reasons. They're not working. They're not in school. They're literally not connected, as you said, to a path to any kind of sort of productive um, experience. Right? That's right. The 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 worrying part here with that number is that there's 53,000 um, young people who are not getting skills either in the workplace or in school. Um, so from an economic standpoint, this is our future workforce in our city. And if they're not getting skills and experience today, um, whether that be in retail or other other customer service jobs, um, they're not going to be equipped to, to fund or to be in those jobs that we're creating for tomorrow. Um, from a public safety standpoint, it's also a concern. It's been said many times the best way to stop a bullet is a job. Um, and from a, a public health standpoint, too, there's um, some clear linkages from um, gainful employment and public health outcomes. So th I think we all have a stake in addressing this opportunity youth issue. And so it's great to see the mayor and others, I think, um, stepping up into the space and taking some leadership here because we are certainly behind other cities on this issue. No doubt. So opportunity youth, what should we imagine that someone who's in opportunities is doing all day? What are they doing with their time? That's that's a good question. I think um, not one that we ha I have data, at least, other than anecdotally. I think it's it's a mixed bag. I think 
Um, many are um, looking for work. Um, there's mm-hmm. um, youth unemployment in San Diego is about 20%. So 20% of 16, 24 year olds um, who are actively looking for work cannot find one. And that's particularly um, higher in um, low income neighborhoods. Um, in, in Logan Heights and parts of Southeast San Diego, um, youth unemployment is uh, 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's dirt, certainly some equity issues with the youth unemployment um, uh, data as well. And Let's define youth real quick. So you're talking about 16 to 24-year-olds? Yeah, 16 to 24-year-olds. And so when you say they're actively looking for work, that's the same way as the as the federal government deals with unemployment. It says that it's not necessarily everybody who's not working. It's the population of people who are looking and who aren't finding jobs. That's correct. So, so there could be a whole bunch of others, like you're talking about, that aren't working, but this aren't part of this calculation. That's right. Uh, for the 53,000, that counts everyone. The okay. 53,000 disconnected youth or opportunity youth, the youth unemployment figure, the the 20% in San Diego County, um, that is youth who are actively submitting submitting job applications, submitting resumes, and just simply not hearing back. And and in particular, in the the... Um, Southeast San Diego neighborhoods and Logan Heights um, with high numbers of African-American and Hispanic youth, um, it's almost, it's 40%. So not that far away from one in every other young person who's submitting an application is just simply not not hearing back. So help us put this in context, like compared either to the past or compared to other cities, are, how are we doing? Is, is it getting worse? And are we worse than other places? Um, compared to other cities, we're we're similar with fifty three thousand disconnected youth. That that kind of ranks um, um, in the the highest levels of disconnected youth in the top ten metropolitan cities um, across the county. What's what's striking to me is that um, we're not doing as much about it. So, in um, the city of San Francisco, for example, in the city of Boston, they are employing through the city themselves and the counties themselves. Um, in those areas are employing s- somewhere between three to 4,000 youth um, every summer. Um, and then add that to some private employment. And they, in Boston, for example, they employ about 7,000 um, young people every summer. Um, in San Diego, we're just not there. We're so far behind in this in this employment issue. And um, there's some promising signs led by the mayor and other key leaders, um, but we have a, lot, a, a long way to go. So I want to make sure that we have the right framework when we're thinking about this. So when we talk about youth employment and, and employing youth, that isn't just opportunity youth that we're thinking of, correct? We're also talking about in-school youth or even, uh, yes. That's right. If we're thinking about this challenge, I think we're trying to approach it in two ways. One is let's let's reconnect the disconnected. Let's reconnect those 53,000 to the best of our ability. Um, but then there's a big prevention um, piece of that. How do how do young people become disconnected from our high schools and our um, community colleges? What what are the causes that lead them to be coming into that fifty three thousand pool? Um, and there's probably a lot there. And um, one of the things that we're looking at is just relevance of curriculum, and that it's not necessarily just a college or bust atmosphere in our high schools, but that high schools know about um, apprenticeship programs, that the high schools know about. Um, job opportunities that high school know uh, high schools know about other pathways that lead to meaningful learning and work opportunities outside of the traditional four year pathway. So there's a a lot of work that needs to be done in that space too. What is going on where the more privileged folks are working more? How is that working out? Is it is is having a a summer or an after school job now a, a privilege? That's a great question, um, Scott. And, and anecdotally, so the last 
three or four months, I myself have gone to big San Diego employers and said, um, hey, we have this program called Connected Careers. We're working with the mayor. Um, will you take some interns, in particular some young people from underserved neighborhoods? And the response that we often get from employers is, oh, you know what? We already have a, a great internship program. So then my follow-up question is typically, um, oh, well, who gets those internships um, or who gets those jobs? And it usually is, oh, it's usually someone, uh, a kid of someone who works here or an executive or someone else. Um, and so it's it's actually becoming, um, again, kind of the age-old adage that you have to, you, you have to know someone um, to get in. But it's really, it's not necessarily a bad thing that that's happening. But what it is doing is exactly exacerbating this, um, this difference between the, the haves and the haves nots and is really kind of creating this um, situation where if you don't have um, a parent or someone that you know in one of these, these, these companies, um, you're, you're likely to have getting a summer job or just so, so low. It seems like there's two types of youth employment opportunities. One is like that, like mm-hmm. an internship, some sort of career pathway experience that may not be in the company's best interest, but it's some sort of you know, mildly, mildly efficient way of getting something done, but it's really about that uh, training program. The other is an actual garbage job yeah. that, that, you know, when I was a youth that, you know, I ended up doing you know, things in the kitchen of a restaurant mm-hmm. or, um, you know, are we finding that those opportunities of, or those, those just jobs that aren't very good, but that, that were often given to kids out of uh, school or, or in summer, are, are they just not as existent as they were before or they're being done by other classes of folks? Um, I think, I think it's a mixed bag. Our fun, we are placing a lot of people in the hundreds, um, a lot of young people with, um, great experiences at, um, at retail, uh, fast food, um, at um, SeaWorld and other other companies and organizations at the zoo, we're placing you know in dozens um, uh, for the zoo's big summer push, and um, that's happening. It's certainly happening, but I think there's just less of those opportunities um, um, all over as um, um, more and more young people are just are looking for those jobs and just not finding them. We have three thousand young people who signed up for Connected Careers um, for this summer. Um, and we're expecting to place about 1,000 of them in jobs. But that's 2,000 um, young people who have said, I want to work. In many cases, they showed up to a three-hour work readiness workshop that we do. Um, and uh, they, so they've shown that they, they are committed to this, and they, we just don't have a slot for them. So what is, I, I've heard some that um, those entry-level jobs are being taken up by older people now, um, meaning sometimes people who thought they were retired, but still need to earn some income. Um, but also regular age working folks, how much is that a factor versus, I don't know, automation or something eliminating entry level jobs? Yeah, I think, um, nationally, I think we've seen that. Um, I think that shows up in the data that, um, as people are living longer, having to stretch retirement savings further, um, that's, that's certainly happening nationally. We haven't experienced that as much locally. And again, um, Mm -hmm. No hard data that I can share about that, but just anecdotally, um, it's it's more been um, kind of the lack of summer jobs for young people um, has been more, I think, a um, an outcome of just the changing nature of the job market and automation, that kind of thing here in San Diego. Mm. What about the minimum wage? I, I you know I got paid minimum wage. Um, it uh, I you know this is where everybody says an increase in the minimum wage. Uh, or at least partly would would have a negative effect as far as those opportunities 
uh, are you running into that? Uh, are they? Is it? Is is just the whole world of automation and globalization the the bigger factor? Um, minimum wage is an interesting one. It's one that we at the Workforce Partnership are we've actually started um, to study now with our research team about what that means for different populations in San Diego and different sectors. Um, nothing conclusive at this time. I, our, my sense is is that that's just gonna you know uh, drive. Um, a greater push towards automating some of uh, some different jobs that young people might have been taking, um, have been um, doing in the past. But um, again, um, it's one that probably will impact you know all low wage workers in different ways, and youth um, in particular um, um, are some of the, the the biggest population that has some of these jobs that will be impacted. I've been curious about um, that. So we're talking about California's commitment uh, that was passed by the legislature and signed by the governor to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2022. Well, not only that, the San Diego one just went up. That's right. Um, and it's more, it's accelerating faster than, than the state one. Uh, and that actually went into effect today, I think. Yeah. So what's... Uh, what I've noticed is that they they didn't in California, or I believe in San Diego either, make some kind of lower threshold um, minimum wage for young people, whereas other states or jurisdictions have done that. Do you know what the conversation was on that? Um, I don't. I know that they've been happening. I don't have a good sense of where um, um, where that is at the state level. Mostly, they just deny that that is a significant part portion of the of the minimum wage earners. They they point out now. Stats as high as you know, ninety percent of them are are actual you know grownups uh, trying to make a living. So I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. The point is is like that that they just uh, they just disregarded that that uh, that concern. One of the big things when we talk to employers of wage and the cost is usually the last thing that they ask about. It's usually, especially if they're under 18, it's workers' compensation, it's um, risk, it's background checks, it's, are this, is this young person going to be ready? Is it, um, there's a sense, oh, am I going to, are my other staff, full-time staff going to be babysitting? Um, so usually all those questions come up first okay. and then the wage comes up. And um, for all those other questions, which are legitimate business concerns, um, we've actually made it real simple. We actually have services where we'll actually have a third party um, provide the payrolling if the company wants to do that, take any kind of workers' compensation risk um, and costs that um, come with employing a young person, um, and even run all the payroll. We'll do it, we'll do it all for them because um, our goal is just to make it as easy as possible for businesses to provide meaningful experiences for young people. One of the points that you know libertarians and such will make is that if you just had no minimum wage that everybody would get hired and 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 i guess behind that is an idea that even if you're not making a significant amount of money you are earning sort of a skills and you know these kinds of soft skills of of being able to show to, to work on time of handling dilemmas of all these kinds of things when you look at the problem of youth employment you're not just talking about the income they're getting what do you think is so important about a youth uh, a, a young person getting a job um, before they actually begin what might be called their career. Yeah, I think um, one of the things we did a couple of years ago is we surveyed about 1,500 employers in San Diego County around the skills gap in our five different priority sectors. Um, and without going into detail about what those sectors are and what we found um, on the kind of technical skills, the one thing that we found that every single employer reported was the biggest gap they have is what 
traditionally have been known as soft skills. We're trying to rebrand those as essential skills, things like problem solving, communication, collaboration, conflict management. These are the things that employers across the board in San Diego are saying the, the, the graduates and the other people they're hiring at entry level positions just don't have. And if I think about my first job working at a fast food place, um, working with a team, working with customers, using customer service, working out problems and working on the fly. Those are all things that I learned um, when I was 16 years old working at a Italian fast food place mm-hmm. um, that if uh, 40% of our young people in some of our disadvantaged neighborhoods just aren't getting, um, they're not building that muscle. They're not building that essential skills muscle. And and even if they are um, building potentially some um, technical skills and getting um, graduating from high school and other, other post-secondary education um, opportunities, if they don't have those soft skills, employers are increasingly putting them towards the end of the line um, in terms of hiring. Yeah, employers, particularly from what I read, are complaining about the soft skills or essential skills, as you call them, of millennials. And um, it's during the the um, young adulthood of millennials that the youth employment rate has really plummeted. I think it's almost half of what it was in the 1970s. So that could explain a lot. It seems to me. I think so. I mean, if you think about all of our, if you think about your first job, mm-hmm. um, what did you learn? You certainly got a paycheck and you might've been able to go on a little shopping spree or whatever, but um, you really learned that um, how, how to work for a kind of a, a common goals, a goal, whether that is simple as, um, you know, making a good Italian food meal, but, um, you worked with people that maybe you didn't always get along with, but you had to work with them. You had to communicate up and down the organization and to customers and all those things are, I still use today. So, yeah, it's funny. It's, um, you know, I think the millennials, millennials get a bad rap and in, in many cases, cause you know, I've hired dozens of them and they've been fantastic, <laughs> but I have noticed the ones that do come in, you know, the, the couple or few that I've had who this has been their first job, uh, I've, I've found that to be an interesting experience of, of, you know, I was pretty well accustomed to what it was like to have somebody, you know, hold me accountable of, uh, of deal with, with conflict, mild conflict even. And, and some of those things are, you could tell were very raw for them when they came out into the, you know, into this situation. So I think there is something to be said about having like those experiences in the past. So what is the skills gap you talked about? Um, this, the skills gap kind of broadly defined is just, you know, the, the, the difference between what skills um, and requirements employers have for folks they're trying to hire and the um, skills, talents and abilities of job seekers, youth or adult job seekers looking to fill those jobs. Um, and, and certainly there's some technical skills gap. For example, there's not enough folks with engineering degrees for to really power our um our sectors that use engineering. There's not enough folks with um, other advanced degrees to support our life sciences communities. Um, but uh, the common theme across all of them is just not enough um, people with, uh, you know, we've heard grit and empathy um, and um, the ability to work with teams um, is, that's a that's a gap in our workforce. Is, and it's, it's one of those that's really difficult to measure. Um, but we've measured it just through uh, thousands of employer interviews, and they said we just want someone to show up, um, care about what we do, um, care about how they do it, um, and we can teach the wretch from there. Yeah, you so, mentioned grit. I think another one is just is energy, right? Yeah. Like it's mm-hmm. like so hard to teach somebody to be like really energetic and ambitious every day. That's right. Well, so if 
low-income folks and folks of color are less likely to have a summer job or a, a job as a young person than can we extrapolate that they that the skills gap for them or the skills shortage for them is more acute um, that just um, increases the inequality that we're struggling with as a society yeah I think so I think two points I, I actually really want to drive home to that question um, one is um, one of the one of the biggest kind of concrete challenges that um, African-American and Hispanic um, communities, especially low-income communities, face in the summer jobs and youth employment issue is transportation. Mm. And one story to really put a, a, a point on that, um, we had a young person in one of our programs from City Heights and got a great internship with, up in Sorrental Valley area. And I don't know if any of you have ever tried to take public transportation from City Heights to Sorrento Valley, but their internship that summer started, I think, at 9 a.m., this young man had to wake up, um, not not wake up, but actually catch the bus at about 5.30 a.m. from City Heights. I think it was two, one bus, a trolley, and then two more buses mm. um, to get to this company's front door at 9 a.m. Um, and then what would happen often, you know, sometimes a couple times a week was that one of the buses might have been late and you'd miss a connection and he would show up at 9.30 or 9.45. And we would hear back from this employer saying, you know what, this some of these kids just aren't motivated or they're, they're just not, this person's been late to, uh, four times this month. This is this employer's thinking this great opportunity. This person has been late when in reality that I don't, I couldn't think of anyone, any young person um, as committed, more committed than who, what this young man was. But circumstances beyond his control, he was showing up late and it was interpreted by the employer that he wasn't committed when he was in fact waking up or trying to leave about three hours before he was supposed to be there just to get there on time. And that's, yeah. that happens all the time. I've heard that, that the first question they often get is, do you have a car? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that transportation issue is huge. What's, what's the other factor? The, the second point is just going back to this issue of social capital as, as we've learned that, that, uh, it's, if you don't know someone in a company, it's very hard to get a job or an internship. Um, so I, going back to the issue of what, what's a school, what's the future of the school, a school's role in this um, kind of youth employment and youth career issue? I really see as the tr the traditional role of schools needs to change. Traditionally, schools are knowledge brokers. The teacher might have a piece of knowledge, and he needs to transfer that to the student. Um, in the future, I really think schools need to play a much bigger role in becoming what I would call an opportunity broker brokering opportunities to um, internships, to job shadows, and really bringing community resources like our Connected Careers program um, into the into the classroom and actually bringing students out of the classroom to learn and, and build their own social um, capital so that they can be set up for career success. Yeah, that's huge. A, a, a principal that I admire said he's filling in where the country club is there for for white kids to help them get opportunities. He, he feels a responsibility to fill in that gap for them. That's, that's right on. All right. Andy Hall, uh, Vice President, Chief uh, Program Officer at the Workforce Partnership. Hey, uh, thanks and uh, good luck. All right. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having Andy. me. Okay. So we led that discussion with the mayor's pledge to hire a thousand kids or yep. to get them a job. So we will need to check on that. Uh, we're not just going to let that hang. And also, uh, Andy had a couple of things that he said in there that uh, we're just going to double check on later as well. Yeah, so um, he mentioned that he thought they'd get to 1,000 kids employed this summer. As of their latest update on July uh, 6th that I received, they only had gotten 150 kids placed in positions. So 
Uh, we'll see if they hit their 1,000 goal that they, they had. But we really need to mobilize better in San Diego. With Boston doing 7,000 jobs, we need our chambers of commerce. We need our EDC. We, need, we really need our business community and our political leaders not just to talk about the need for youth employment and their first jobs, but actually to do some work to create jobs for young people. And on that note, this has been Good Schools for All, a joint production of The Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. And please also uh, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, on uh, podcast devices of, and applications of all kinds. And if you are on iTunes, please uh, review us and this show positively. <laughs> uh, if you don't want to do that, that's okay, but please consider it and uh, we will uh, benefit from that. Thank you very much. Thank you.